Welcome everybody to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. I'm Finn Arne Jorgensen. And we're happy to welcome today Catherine Oliver Katie, who is a research associate at the University of Cambridge. And she will be presenting her book, Veganism, Archives and Animals, Geographies of a Multi-Species World, which came out with Routledge in 2021. So Katie, we'll give it over to you to introduce us to the book. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm going to talk for about 15 minutes uh, and yeah, about this book, which is basically based on my PhD research that I finished in 2020. Um, so I'll just start talking. Uh, so on a dark winter night in November 2013, on the floor of my bedroom in the final year of my undergraduate degree, I watched the documentary Earthlings. And if there's any vegans in the room, you might have heard of the documentary Earthlings. It's sometimes referred to as the vegan maker uh, because of the kind of disturbing violent footage it contains of undercover, um, undercover footage of like research labs, puppy mills, farms, all the kind of classic vegan uh, spaces of activism. Uh, and I, this, this film really upset me. I cried uh, and I, f I felt like I was complicit in these worlds of pain that I was watching. And I couldn't reconcile this knowledge with who I thought I was. Uh, and I threw up. And at that point, I decided to go vegan. Uh, before that, I'd been vegetarian. And the next morning, I went to the cupboards and the fridge, which I can't say were that full, in my student house, and uh, gave my uh, everything containing dairy or eggs to my housemates, telling them I'd decided to become vegan. For months after, at random times, I'd feel uh, like kind of waves of horror or disgust come over me. Uh, and I, I, I came, uh, came to many nights of tears and anger at the pain I could now see everywhere I turned. So this transition was riddled with kind of guilt and confusion, lots of strange meals. Even eight years ago, there were not uh, there was not the wealth of vegan foods we have today. Lots of textured vegetable protein disasters. Um, so a couple of years later, I began my PhD, initially developing a project on contemporary veganism. Uh, but then uh, so a couple of things happened. One of those was that I took a position in the British Library uh, on their PhD placement scheme, working in the archives of animal activist Richard D. Ryder. And the second was in 2018 when me and my mum rescued six chickens who were raised in a hatchery near to our home in Lancashire. Uh, and they had been on their way to a commercial egg farm, but instead they came to live a very kind of pampered life with us instead. Uh, so over the course of the next four years, I had the pleasure of meeting lots of uh, brilliant scholars, learning about the lives of vegans, past and present, across Britain. Uh, and so this, this is a kind of British, uh, I want to just think a little bit about British veganism. Uh, so Britain has long declared itself a nation of animal lovers. Evidence for this is claimed at least as far back as Puritan rule under Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century. And that was when blood sports became outlawed. And these practices became associated with the lower, less civilised classes. Uh, national animal loving in Britain has also been attributed to the Victorian era with the rise of widespread pet keeping, uh, prior to which pets were an elite extravagance. Uh, but the rise of cats and dogs as companions uh, was, was seen in this popularity of pets in Britain. Uh, this was cemented with the founding of the world's oldest animal protection society, the RSPCA, which is again often used to qualify Britain's animal loving status. And Richard Ryder, whose archives I was in, uh, was chairman of the RSPCA in the 80s. He is on the board still today. Uh, so he's seen a lot of change in the RSPCA. Uh, and, but as Joe Wills writes, as uh, legal scholar Joe Wills writes, the frequent claim that Britain is a nation of animal lovers can be hard to reconcile with the reality of how we often treat uh, most, uh, even the most revered of our fellow creatures. So this love often extends only to the animals we live with and not others. Uh, so in his book, Diet for a Large Planet, Chris Otter talks about the history of humans, animals, plants, ecologies, and movement that powered Britain's industrial revolution. He talks about the nutrition transition and the meatification of the British diet in the 19th century. But alongside this meatification and distancing of Britain from uh, its actual animal production, animal agriculture production, was the early roots of a burgeoning alternative way of eating and living, vegetarianism. In September 1857, so about 35 years after the RSPCA was formed, uh, a bunch of social reformers and devout Christians in Manchester in the north of England um, founded the Vegetarian Society. Uh, and it was, they tried and failed to win the support of the conservative RSPCA. This is a theme common to the society. Uh, they're, they're very much more conservative than lots of, of, of radical, more radical, or not even that radical, 
animal organizations. Uh, but the RSPCA uh, continued to focus on domestic and working animals. This early vegetarianism was for many deeply entangled with religion, especially Christianity, as well as other social reform causes such as poverty alleviation, food reform and socialism. Uh, it wasn't, however, until 1944, with the founding of the Vegan Society, that vegetarianism was formally split into those who ate dairy and eggs and those who didn't. Uh, after the founding of the Vegan Society, alongside Dorothy Watson, uh, Donald Watson, who's credited as the founder, uh, although it was Donald and Dorothy, uh, he writes in The Vegan, which is the Vegan Society's magazine, about the spiritual elements of, uh, of his own veganism that he kind of centered in veganism. Uh, so he wrote in one of the very first issues of The Vegan, even though the scientific evidence may be lacking, we shrewdly suspect that the great impediment to man's moral development may be that he is a parasite of lower forms of animal life. Investigation into the non-material or vibrational properties of food has barely begun, he wrote. And it's not likely that the usual materialistic methods of research will be able to help much. But is it not possible that, that he uh, continued, uh, it is as a result of eliminating all animal vibrations from our diet, that we may discover the way to really healthy cell construction and a degree of intuition and psychic awareness unknown at present. A few years later in the same publication, we can also find one of the origins of the environmental roots of veganism, especially to soil. Uh, this is something that's increasingly interested me over the years, this relationship between veganism and soil, uh, but also to national security and self-sustenance. And so Douglas Semple, who was another of the founding members of the Vegan Society, wrote in the same publication, The Vegan, uh, the question of growing health foods is of real national importance, for no nation can be well which ignores the cultivation of its soil. We are taking a long time to learn that although we have a most fertile soil, in Britain this is, we are practically a landless people. Uh, so Douglas Semple, Semple was an early member of the UK's Vegan Society. His concern with land use and urbanisation uh, was contextualised at the time in wider concerns for self-sustainability in Britain, being at odds with milk production. Uh, particularly, he said, so long as we use dairy products, we can't make the most use of the land. Uh, and the echoes of this concern can be found today with regards to contemporary cattle farming, deforestation and environmental damage. The connection between soil fertility, horticulture and gardening remained central to the Vegan Society's communications throughout the mid 20th century. Um, and so, so uh, Semple later wrote, if we could go to the root of our social and health problems, we must individually live simpler and more natural lives. So animal activism, vegetarianism, veganism kind of have these intertwined but quite separate histories. Um, they've long been entangled with British society, not as an alternative way of living, but also responding to wider social, cultural and political issues. In the book, I pick up the threads of activism and veganism across historical and contemporary landscapes in Britain, um, with its roots dating back to the 19th century, but my work doesn't actually start until the 1970s. So there's lots of very kind of interesting context. But the archive I was in, uh, Richard, the, the, it takes part in the first part of the book, and that's Richard Ryder's archive. So Richard Ryder was a, he's one of these, you know, these people that are a bit of everything. He was a psychologist, ethicist, historian, political campaigner, writer. Um, and he became, uh, well, his first memory of, of, of animals, he said, was when he saw a blackbird dead in the street when he was a child which set him to thinking about animals as sentient subjects. And then in 1970, his story goes, he was in the bath pondering questions of animal pain and he had a eureka moment uh, that the oppression of animals is structural like racism or sexism. And he coined the term speciesism that I'm sure many of us will have heard uh, before. Uh, and so, so the, the first part of the book is really about this history and unpicking whether Ryder's eureka moment really was Ryder's Eureka moment and the kind of longer histories that had been gone on. And particularly, I'm interested in this group uh, called the Oxford Group, but not just them. So that was Ryder, Peter Singer, Stan Godlevich and Ros Godlevich who were in Oxford. And they decided, or no, they didn't decide, they argued for animal rights as opposed to animal uh, care or animal welfare. And they wanted to defeminize the movement and make it a rational movement for justice. Uh, and I would say I'm quite critical of this in the book, critical of the histories it kind of erased. Uh, and I look instead to a kind of feminist uh, theory of, of this, uh, particularly yeah, critical friendship, which leads into the second part, which is based on interviews with vegans in Britain. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in how contemporary veganism actually 
almost pushes back or dismisses that rational rights-based approach. And it's very concerned with feeling, with feeling wrong in my body. So when, and I didn't expect to find this actually, when I was doing my interviews uh, for the book, uh, for the project, uh, everyone kept talking to me about how they felt wrong and how once they learned about veganism, it became this truth and they felt wrong about eating animals. And much like I did when I threw up, it became a really embodied um, practice. So, so that, that's the kind of second part of the book uh, goes, is about how veganism changes the world, uh, not changes the world, but changes people's navigations of the world. Uh, it moves thinking with veganism from uh, a mode of staying with the human trouble into a mode where the body can be constantly remade across history and space. Uh, and a collective body, not just an individual body, it kind of connects veganism with animals, humans, and the world. Um, but I also talk a little bit about how in contemporary veganism, there has been a, a kind of prioritizing of the health-based and the environmental-based veganism uh, as, as almost to the loss of animals in there. So I found that I really lost the animals in my research, uh, which, which is kind of by, you know, these happy coincidences happen or, you know, things happen and we got these chickens and we never meant to get these chickens and I never meant to study these chickens, but these chickens happened to come and live with me just as I was finishing my interviews for uh, my PhD. So I was going to just write up this historical contemporary thing on veganism and then I, then I got these chickens and it really set me to asking actually well what does this all mean for animals themselves um so in I guess even in my veganism before that it had sort of been like oh well it's just wrong it's just wrong but what does it actually is there is there any impact for animals themselves how do we rethink what worlds might look like full farmed animals and a chicken in some sense is much easier more normal to live with in, in Britain than a cow or a pig but it was still a kind of experiment in living differently uh, and so when Alice Walker the novelist uh, wrote a book called the chicken chronicles and she chose to live with chickens later in her life uh, and at the opening in the opening of that book she asks who knew what would happen next who could guess that I would fall headlong into a mystery that I would find myself pulled into this parallel universe that all other animals existed. And I find that I also was pulled into this, this chicken world uh, and now, now I work solely on chickens. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, become, become a, a real thing of what, well, how does veganism create new worlds for animals? And there, there's another book by Paige Smith and Charles Daniel in which they basically argue that the chickens that we have today aren't chickens. They're so kind of manipulated, transformed, um, unlike an actual chicken from the past, that they're not chickens and their eggs aren't eggs. Uh, and I kind of look into this idea a bit and I, I say, That's, that can't be true, right? They, they are still chickens. Um, so yeah, so, so it kind of has these three parts, uh, but more than anything, it kind of asks what vegan geographies might be. Um, uh, and for me, kind of to, to wrap up a little intro to the book, veganism isn't just an object of study. Uh, it's an ethics, a politics, a practice, it's theoretical, conceptual and material, and it can be taken in so many directions. Um, veganism so far has been a bit of a hot potato in geography. Environmental geographies haven't really wanted to take it up. Food geographies haven't really wanted to take it up. Uh, activist geographies, not really. And it all kind of gets pointed, pushed and pointed in different directions. But now with the mainstreaming of veganism, there has been a rush to claim uh, veganism for all of those dis dis uh, sub-disciplines and beyond to kind of say actually actually we do we do want veganism we do want veganism and so this is something others have talked about as well there's a kind of as well as the corporate greenwashing of veganism there's a rush to claim veganism uh, and there's the possibility that it's about to be you know there's a possibility that it could be diluted or there's a possibility that it can really establish itself as a kind of intervention and a challenge to more well-established areas of more than human theory um, so I will stop there if that's last long enough to talk for. Thanks, Kate. It is really uh, fascinating. And you you draw up a lot of like rich lines that we can can you know discuss and uh, and talk about here. So just also reminded and for the people in the audience to let us know in the chat if you have questions and we'll we'll bring you in. Uh, but I thought I would start just by asking a bit about the I mean, it was fascinating to hear about this concept of care that you talk about because uh, I mean, I clearly see that in the, you know, the, the vegetarian and vegan movement, there's care for animals in what they do. Uh, so, but one of the things too, that I know from the history of the, 
uh, both from hunting and the mm-hmm. conservation movement, it's there's also a very strong element of care to there. You know, they care for animals so that the population is you know sustainable, so that they can continue harvesting it. So, uh, so I was wondering if you. I mean, you kind of touching it on the feelings versus rationality, but could you say a bit more about, you know, the the multifacetedness of the concept of care? Mm-hmm. You know, do you see that there are some debates about what it really means uh, in, in your material? Definitely. And I think this is one of the things I actually struggled a lot with when writing it is this definition of care, because absolutely, you know, farmers who uh, farm animals care for their animals, hunters care for their animals. And these are all different, almost ideologies of care definitions of care and this is where a lot of the trouble comes in between like veganism well not a lot of trouble, some of the trouble comes in between say veganism and farmers uh that they just do not have the same definition of care so when a farmer is saying i care for these cows a vegan you know from a vegan perspective you can't understand that that doesn't mean it's not true uh, in some sense it's just these, these these kind of clashes and i really struggled and i i talk a little bit about care in the book but i'm not sure care is actually the right way uh, so Eva Giro talks a lot more about care in in this way uh, I'm not sure it's quite the right way to frame this and so some of the framing around that in in my book is in the in the kind of presence part is around truth and around what what this is uh why those kind of ideas of truth produce such visceral reactions produce such uh yeah and I guess it leads to well that's why the care there becomes so I don't want to say, you know, kind of uh, at heads with other kinds of care. And it's like, well, what is care? And this is a wider debate in kind of more than human geographies. Can we care and kill? Can we care and eat? Can we care and um, not live with? Can we care and allow to go to extinct? Um, but I think a vegan, a vegan idea of care is interesting to think with because it challenges lots of that um, work that says you can do that by simply saying, no, you can't care. And that is really, you know, <laughs> it's no wonder that you would kind of react like, well, you can't say, I can't care. But it does, if we can take the kind of em- emotion almost out of it a little bit, the kind of immediate uh, reaction to someone saying, as from a vegan perspective, no, you can't care and do that. It can provide a fruitful conversation, but with within this whole long history that has always been, I guess, the site that there is of conflict is, is that, it's not easy to have that conversation about can you care and kill. So yeah, care, care is one of the most difficult things almost to talk about uh, because if you come in from, from a vegan perspective and no one else in the room is coming from that perspective, it feels like you're the antagonist, feels like veganism is the antagonist um, just from, from the start, which I don't necessarily think it has to be. I think one another thing that really struck me um in when you describe your way into this project then um i mean it resonates with this larger debate about knowledge and action you know we we all know that this this system of industrially breeding animals for food is bad but very few i mean if you look at it like in large scale and very few actually take the consequences of that in the way that you described that you did because they don't have necessarily that physical reaction they don't they don't fully take the consequences of this knowledge they have. So, so you describe this as truth, uh, um, as, as one of the, the elements you look at. And I'm wondering if, if this idea of agnotology uh, might also be relevant. So the, the production of, I mean, non-knowledge. The ignorance. Deli- yeah, ignorance, the deliberate choice to, mm-hmm. to not know, to not share information about something because you know that if this was known, if this was something that people really took the consequences of, then the system couldn't continue. Mm-hmm. Which is very much like we can think about climate change, yes, right? Precisely. So, so everybody knows it, but you choose not to necessarily do the things you need to do, right? Yeah, so, so I was curious, you know, if, if you have some more insights into these mechanisms between you know, knowledge and action. What can we learn then from this case of, of veganism? Uh, I mean, also, I mean, if you have descriptions then from your, the people that you study, those actors, uh, are they all like your story? Are there other mechanisms at play? Yeah, there definitely are. There's definitely a kind of range of things. Uh, I do have a quote somewhere that I, I would uh, re- read to you. Let's see if I can find it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think... 
the spark for people is different. So like when Richard Ryder sits about talking in that bath and having that spark moment, things led up to that moment. But in the narratives that people were um, kind of telling me in the interviews, it's like nothing up to that moment existed. And in their narratives, which isn't, you know, this is their kind of understanding of the situation. It was a snap moment. And it, they were, but then when we got to talking more, in almost all cases, there'd been more incidences before that. But it's, it's a narrative device. Um, so, so one of, the, I found the quote, one of the um, people I interviewed, she was a teacher and she was probably, probably about 40. And she said to me, when I first had that revelation moment, it was quite difficult. I cried at random stuff. I was reading and reading and reading. I was listening to Farmageddon, which you might have heard of, when I was driving to work. And I'd pull over on the, on the side of the road and be like, oh my God, the bees, the bees, as fresh waves of horror and realisation came over me. And that quote's really stuck with me for, for years because it's just kind of, that that is such an embodied way. But there were other people that I spoke to that did see it more rationally, but did still have those kind of visceral reactions. Sometimes, often it was to the smell as well. There were often, it was often a kind of smell. Uh, and there's, there's a paper from about 20, over 20 years ago um, by someone called McDonald. And the, the, the paper's called, Once You Know Something, You Can't Unknow It. And he interviewed vegetarians and vegans about that exact, that kind of moment and how they could have actually seen the footage before, they could have known that before, and for some reason, it is a snap moment. And I, 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 there are a vegan psychologists working on this, you know, what causes people to have that kind of moment uh, from a geographical perspective. I guess it, it's, it's, um, it is about the, the kind of spaces and even the, the digital space. So you see these activists, you, you might have seen them have the VR now and they have VR headsets and they're on the streets and they put on the VR headsets and people see um, slaughterhouse footage. Uh, and some people that will change their mind. But for lots more people, that's just gonna make them kind of furious at the person who put the VR headset on them. And I remember they did it at my university and there was some, it just happened at um, some school kids who were about 15 or 16 put on the VR headset and it became this really problematic thing. Well, should you be showing children that without their um, parents' consent? Because it is really kind of violent. Uh, so so it's, it's, yeah, that I think people can notice, and it's, it was interesting to hear when people snapped. And some some of the people have been vegetarian for a long time. I think similarly to me, just hadn't realised. And then when they realised, they're like, "Oh no!" But some people have gone from eating meat every day overnight. Uh, often it was a story of one animal changed things. Uh, very rarely was it a story of um, kind of videos. That was rarer. It was often. Um, the story of an animal or the story of reading uh, and what was what was also significant was once people had that moment they did so much kind of education uh, learning reading which can also take you down dark, darker paths on, on online but they it then became a kind of reverse engineering of knowledge almost they they had the thing and then found the information to back up that feeling of, that it was wrong, so it was almost reversed to what the rationalists of the 70s thought. So I think that uh, leads nicely into this question then from Micah in the chat um, about the intersection between veganism uh, and class and race. I mean, particularly when it comes to interview subjects then, so also the, the stories that you, you've uncovered then. Um, you know, what are those intersections? Are they significant? Are there I mean, gaps uh, or absences in this material that you think are significant? Yeah, I think there's there's uh, there's an interesting conversation uh, about uh, gender and veganism has been kind of talked about a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, and masculinity and femininity and veganism, class and race tend to feature less. Um, my interviewees were from a range of class and race backgrounds, but by no means were exhaustive in that, if that can, that can be a thing. And race only came up once um, when someone who was a black woman was talking about uh, how she experienced herself, her, the vegan community. And she was, was telling me, uh, for example, like when she went onto Facebook to look at a vegan march, all of her friends would go in. But when she went onto an anti-racist march, none of her kind of Facebook friends were going. And it seemed really obvious to her that that was a divide in the vegan community. 
uh, as I understand it, the fastest growing uh, demographic of vegans is black Americans uh, currently. So while I don't say that I don't discount that there is a class and a race thing, there absolutely is. There's also a problem of representation of that kind of being fanned a little bit of, of this dismissive thing. And it used to be a dismissive thing of, well, that's middle-aged women, that's weirdos. <laughs> that's, you know, and there's, there's this really funny, um, not funny, there's this interview uh, with an animal activist at the British Library. And he talks about how he went to the Vegan Society um, garden party in the 70s. And he just described all the people there. And it was like they were from another world. Um, and now it's more kind of, yeah, so there is a problem, but there's also a kind of fan the flames of the problem to represent this as a, a white middle class thing and also uh, dilute the politics of it and make it into a, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, a consumer idea. So Monica had two questions in the chat. The first one actually builds directly on this. Uh, if you could expand a bit then on you know, describing your fieldwork, uh, the people you interviewed, how you went about this and so on. Could you say a little bit about that? We'll leave with the second question afterwards. Yeah, so my, my fieldwork went on for, for uh, three parts. There was uh, eight months in the archives, um, working in the, the Rider archives, which are now in theory publicly available, but actually aren't catalogued uh, and are, can't be found. But if anyone was interested in, in seeing them, I can help them with access to that. Um, so, so there was eight months in there and I was going through uh, all of his papers. There was lots of stuff on the RSPCA, lots of stuff on the founding of different animal activist groups, lots of stuff on um, how animal activist organizations got set up uh, in Britain and across the world, lots of um, zines and lots of letters and lots of kind of drafts of books and very interesting things. And so I was in there for about eight months and then when I came out of the um, archives, I interviewed uh, about 20 people um, and these were like two hour interviews. Um, and so there was a range of people. I tried to select people based on distance, uh, like different locations in the UK, different ages, different genders, different kind of class backgrounds, different races. Uh, and alongside my um, interviews, I was doing an auto ethnography, ethnography, auto ethnography. I was a, a vegan business, a vegan Bergevin for three three years and so lots of the conversations that I had in that kind of vegan circles that I was I was moving in also influenced this and while they're not kind of directly written about what they were definitely influenced what I was doing and what I was thinking about uh, and then when I finished the interviews I then had these chickens and I spent weeks with well weeks with the chickens uh, and I kind of went back and forth to live with the chickens clear up uh, some poo Talk to, the, talk to the chickens, video the chickens, see what the chickens were up to. Uh, and yes, that, and kind of think about what this might look like in a, in a kind of vegan household. So it was quite a long stint of fieldwork. It went on for, for about three years. Uh, so I did my PhD part-time. So it took, took quite a long time. Uh, yeah, which led to the kind of three different parts of the book, although they certainly overlapped so the the archives overlapped with the interviews the interviews overlapped a little bit with with the chickens research so it wasn't wasn't the most linear of research uh of fieldwork processes i would say well monica's second question got to something that i was thinking about which is the, the relationship and you finished there with your chickens right and and in thinking through what the implications are of veganism to the the chicken so really centering the animal then in it and so she was wondering about the idea of human as animal and how that plays in. So that are we on the same level of the chicken in, in that thought? Or is the chicken, I mean, potentially of the same level as us, right? Think differently, right? As, as to, to what the relationship is. So I was wondering if you could say more about that, the, the human animal relation then as imagined or as thought about in, in vegan thought. Yeah, so, so I suppose one of the taglines of, of veganism is um, for humans, for the planet, for animals. Um, and within that, the, there's, um, I guess, what's the best way to describe it? I guess, as a, as a kind of example, there is, there is a, a very far right wing of veganism that um, basically is animals first, is their agenda. 
and they will put animals above uh, humans. And it's quite a nihilistic, I guess, um, I, I, um, ideology of veganism, not one that most vegans would by any means uh, subscribe to, but it, it really puts animals above humans. And within that, there are, there are some groups that I've not researched, but I know of, um, that's uh, basically say we don't care what uh, we don't care about any of these things of like anti-racism feminism we're not interested we just want anyone whoever you are to come and fight for animals animals are better than humans uh, and this really contrast and the, the really contrast with actually what veganism is basically trying to say is we should <laughs> we animals are uh, sorry humans are animals and sometimes animals might win out over humans if we think about uh, sometimes animals might win out over humans but in the in many senses that might be a big cat went out over humans or, but what, would chickens ever win out against over humans that's the kind of question that i am interested in uh, and i think sometimes maybe they would if we can think about it in a who wins <laughs> who wins who loses way which perhaps is not the best way to think about it um so yeah there, there are kind of different angles of this within veganism veganism by no means has one shared definition no means has one sort of shared practice and there is lots of conflict internally as well as externally so lots of the the vegans i talked to were kind of grappling with the internal politics of a movement with its own um, problems and the external perception of it and kind of balancing those those two things but i, I don't know if that really answers the question of where the the human is the you know where the human is an animal uh, which is why richard Ryder's kind of speciesism was quite interesting to work with because I, I will say I, I don't necessarily agree with any or perhaps even all of what he um, wrote about uh, and certainly don't agree with any if not all of what Peter Singer wrote about in Animal Liberation so it's um, yeah yeah it's it's a different negotiation I guess. So I was wondering also in the, your project then as a geographer so what what does the the geography part bring to your project and how you think about spaces or places or you know real or imagined um, to the to the project of veganism? Yeah, in the I guess it's most obvious in the contemporary part, which is uh, as as I wrote over the over the course of writing the the whole project, uh, veganism went from quite fringe to very mainstream and it was uh, reflecting with people on that change people who've been vegan for much longer uh, to people who've just kind of gone vegan in the I guess the surge of veganism of the last few years it was really interesting how much there even spaces like the restaurant the supermarket the the, the family uh, friendships all those places that we eat together had totally transformed over the last few years and that had made things easier to eat, but actually more difficult to have a conversation about veganism. So in, in part of why I talk about the friction at the dinner table used to be a really productive space, a space where even if, you know, as a vegan, it might not be particularly nice to just have chips and a salad when you go out for a meal, but by going along, kind of people looked and they'd ask questions and they would say, well, why are you only eating that? And that might be met with hostility, but it might also be the first time someone's heard that necessarily. Whereas now, compared to this, um, compared to now, you can go out and you can have a meal that looks the same. Nobody will necessarily know that you're even eating a vegan burger and not a meat burger, an animal burger. Uh, so that's actually removed the friction from that space. It's removed uh, any, if, if nobody knows that you're a vegan, how do you advocate? And, it, and part of that is that lots of vegans don't want to advocate. They are maybe plant-based or they, don't want to kind of have that conversation. So some of the people I spoke to described themselves as quite shy. And so they would just pretend, uh, one of them said she went out for a work dinner and was talking about how the, I guess the space of work was, she felt like she couldn't actually say she was vegan. She was new to the job. And so she just had an orange juice and kind of waited to leave. Other people, I guess the personality thing is much the spatial thing. Where can you intervene? You can intervene more easily with friends and family than you can intervene in the workplace. Um, and the, the, even, the, even the space of like the supermarket, uh, how does the supermarket become a different place when everything in there um, is upsetting? So there's aisles you don't go down, but some, sometimes there was like an experiment with if we put the plant-based food in, the, in with the meat, will more people eat it? 
And this was very upsetting for vegans because then they had to go, instead of going to their set of special uh, bit, they had to then go look through the meat. Uh, so so this, this kind of geographical, the actual spatial element of it in the contemporary thing uh, was very interesting. In the future oriented bit, the, the kind of living with chickens bit, it becomes a bigger question of, well, yeah, I could live with chickens at my, at my mom's house. <laughs> But there's a bigger question of capital of who can own land, uh, who can own a house, who has the right to live with animals. And so I rent uh, and you can't even keep a uh, animals, you know, you can't keep a cat or a dog. And so how are we to imagine other worlds when there are these constraints on our spaces for many of us? Uh, how can we, yeah, how can we have a different world if if you can't, you know, if you can't own land, if you can't protect those those kind of things so it was more in the contemporary and the future bit I guess in the historical bit it became a problem of this this uh, was a new archive so it was more descriptive rather than space based and the few the kind of other two parts are far more spatially informed I wanted to ask about your choice of uh, using archives in the title I mean veganism archives and animals um, to title of the book then uh, and I mean, you described the archives you worked with, I mean, which is, I mean, quite familiar for a historian, you know, you go in and you look at, at things in archives, but in the way that you described it, a historian would necessarily put it in the title. I mean, that's where they get their material from. Um, if you put archive in the title, you would probably expect a more, I mean, meta discussion of archive as concept. Um, and so, so could you say a little bit more about how you, you use the concept archive here and, and what it does for you in the book? Yeah, so there, there is um, a chapter on the, the kind of archives itself, the archives of activism. Uh, there is another project I did off the back of uh, my time at the British Library called Archiving Activism, uh, which is about archiving uh, different kinds of activism, but my part was about archiving animal activism. And so particularly, I don't know why that's the title. That was just the title that, that kind of was catchiest, I guess. And it wasn't necessarily my first choice of title, uh, but it is the title that it has. Um, so, so there is a chapter where I talk about the, um, the archives of activism and particularly about why, well, why did I end up in this one archive as opposed to any other archive? And the reason I ended up in this one archive as opposed to any other archive is because this is pretty much the only archive in Britain. Of, and it's not there are bits and pieces elsewhere there's kind of online places um but there's there's an archive in australia peter singer's archive and there's tom reagan's archive in uh, the states and there's richard Ryder's archive at the british library other than those three archives the fragmented nature of animal archives would mean that that, that isn't um that isn't something you could like substantially engage with on the limits of time and money that i i had um, so, so there's a reflection of, well, what histories can be told? And so this is why I was talking about the, the, the friendship is, well, the histories that are told through those archives are their histories. And so they have this really dominant voice of the history of animal activism uh, and through their archives, being at such prestigious places as well, that is really going to set the tone for future um, future researchers as well. And so this was also a challenge to this. A little bit uh, and I worried that maybe I was overly critical or maybe not critical enough in the book of actually what this means that only certain people are archived that only are these powerful men with very elite connections like Richard Ryder was a very very uh, upper class man his um, brother was a parliamentarian um, so so it becomes well who is what are these archives and what are the archives that are missing and it's all the kind of illegal activism all the underground things like animal liberation front things like um, more radical activism will not ever be archived in a place like the British Library because those archives don't exist they they destroyed you know so so I guess that that there is a kind of a larger comment on archives but as to why that is the title I don't know <laughs> it just you know it's <laughs> Yeah, I mean, recognize that it's part of the, the process of making a book too. Uh, mm -hmm. Titles sometimes happen. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I asked, you know, is, is I mean, your, your explanation is, is, is good. I mean, there's no, no problem with that. But, you know, 
sometimes as a historian, you come into some pretty weird archives where you also, I mean, you have to think about the materiality of the archive. The, I mean, in a way, bringing also the geographer, you know, these, these archives are space, they have traces of the world outside. So mm. uh, been in like some mining archives where you actually will find trace, physical traces of animals. There's uh, skins mm. and so on. I mean, not to mention that, you know, medieval archives are often, or books are made from animal or actually skins. Skin. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so uh, <clears throat> coming into this book talk, not having read the book, uh, you know, I was wondering, you know, would we find some, uh, you know, traces of animals and, you know, this, this knowledge to action thing in the archive, but no, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah. when I was working in the British Library, I was in their basements, so I wasn't in the reading rooms. I was working in the basements. So I think, I don't know if it's in the final. You know, you write a book and then you forget immediately what's in it. It was in one version, potentially this one. <laughs> I write about the experience, the ethnography of the archive. And so I was in their basements. And as I walked in, so his archive was in like the back corner. And those basements, I don't know if you've been to the British Library, but are, cover the whole span of the, um, the where the British Library is. And they're kind of very, very, there's like four, I don't know how many floors, uh, but it's very big. So you have to walk quite a long way <laughs> to get to the back corner where the new arc, the uncataloged archives were. And as you walk past every, exactly that, the books are wrapped in uh, animal skins. There were uh, artifacts and things in there. So walking past all of these kind of animal bound books to the, the vegan, or well, not even the vegan, the animal activist archive at the back did definitely shape that, um, that space. I guess now uh, in my kind of current work, I'm thinking more about what is an archive, particularly around eggs, what is uh, is an archive uh, that isn't an archive, a physical archive. Um, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that description is fascinating because it's it's like this you describe in the supermarket, like do we place then the vegan products in the meat section? Like, <laughs> yeah. so in a way, the the vegan archive is also placed in a well non-vegan archive. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that connects into this this question that uh, that Magna has here in the chat and about veganism connected to so many uh, contradictions. I mean, you've highlighted some of them. Uh, and he then brings in uh, ecofeminist Val Plumwood, you see veganism as a modern human position from outside of nature. And I guess, you know, think of nature there. It's like, well, animals eat each other. It's natural to eat animals. So could you comment a bit about that? Definitely. I think that's when I was talking a little bit about the soil at the beginning, this is one of the contradictions that is really interesting to me. Uh, and certainly in things like, um, you know, cultured meat, cell-based meat, uh, sort of been completely uh, contradictory exactly to nature, perhaps, is one argument. I won't say one side of the other, you know, um, if, we're, if our food's then grown in a lab, uh, but that is technically vegan. Is that going to be the best way to move forward veganism in my mind? Potentially not. Uh, that will perhaps <laughs> produce uh, dis disagreement, lots of disagreement. Um, I think actually veganism, contemporary veganism, has distanced itself a little bit from nature. It has become a, um, a corporate, partially because of the corporate greenwashing, partially because of uh, this technological fascination with what, what wild and wonderful things can we do. Um, it's, but we're looking kind of back to the actual vegan archives, the, the vegan society's archives, that's never been the case before. And I think there is also a return back to vegan gardening, to vegan horticulture, to vegan cultivation of the land and the environmental uh, discourse, the environmental arguments that we see going on around veganism are things that ignore the land almost, ignore the specificity of places, ignore the soil. It's more kind of, we just need to stop this and then the world will be saved. And that's not, I mean, that's obviously not, obviously not true. Um, yeah, so, so I'm, I am interested in this. And I think there is a push to return to some of those more uh, grounded uh, kind of in the land ideas of veganism at the same time currently as the techno, uh, techno visions veganism. So it's an interesting moment uh, for, for veganism to see which way it'll go. And for those debates within it, and it'll probably go both ways. Um, yeah, so it'll be, it'll be an interesting thing to follow. Yeah, and I think that's one of those uh, 
this place of where the, this idea of the culture of veganism versus the, the larger structural things that, I mean, they're part, you know, making making certain things possible uh, in terms of, of lifestyles and growing your own things and having animals. But there's also this idea of the consumerism and commodification mm-hmm. uh, of, of vegan products that, that bring a lot of these contradictions. So before we moved to Stavanger, we mm. came five years ago, we lived in Umeå in Northern Sweden, which is in a way the, the vegan capital of, uh, of Scandinavia mm-hmm. because of the, I mean, the straight edge, the hardcore movement, no alcohol, veganism and so on. This movement of the, I mean, early nineties, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that had been a big thing then. And as a result then of this in a way, cultural or countercultural movement rather, mm-hmm. Uh, now in the grocery stores, you know, the big mainstream grocery stores, they had like a really good selection of vegan food. So we would organize events. We had a number of events where people would come specifically because they knew that here you could actually get good vegan foods. They would go to the grocery store to like buy it there. And of course the conference dinners we had were like often logistically very complicated because People mm-hmm. had a lot of like dietary, uh, you know, requests and so on. And it was fine. And the restaurants could actually deliver mm-hmm. on this too. I mean, mm-hmm. they they did good work. So it's, it's fascinating then how I think the, I mean, there's something in the mainstreaming, I guess, uh, where mm-hmm. you can't entirely get away from these contradictions because it becomes commodified also in mm-hmm. certain ways. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it makes it not, it makes it accessible. It actually makes yeah. it doable. Um, for you know in a more equal way <clears throat> yeah it's really it's really difficult a sort of difficult moment because at the same time as you know somewhere like McDonald's bringing up vegan food uh, or plant-based food but, but even those places the, all the chain stores means in theory you know that it's more accessible for people um, although there is the argument that those are not obviously not brought out actually for vegans they're brought out for flexitarians and people to try it and to capture a bit more of the market and what you've see, actually seen in the last few years is lots and lots of independent vegan businesses closing down, not able to compete. Uh, smaller companies like Bart being bought out by bigger kind of Alpro was bought out uh, famously a few years ago by a big dairy. Uh, and so it becomes almost well, the contradictions are more embedded. And the, so veganism can never really be a purity thing. And some people, and I mean, there certainly are purity discourses within there, but that's just not possible um and how do you hold all these things together and that's what uh, was really interesting the people i talked to it was just how are you holding all these things together and everyone's holding them together in different ways uh, and they've always been held together in different ways throughout that history and now we seem to have more more kind of contradictions <laughs> coming so how will veganism continue to deal with that will it um hold on to its radical edge or will it just be another diet um yeah yeah, and I, I mean, I was struck by one of the things that you said um, earlier on about the, you know, the, these turning moments when people decided they were going to be um, vegan, and how the the images, images or video were not the things that people talked about, but rather about um, either their own interaction with an animal, so you know, an embodied um, experience or words. And I, I was thinking about my own experience um, when I was a teenager in high school and um, in the US and read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. And, and The Jungle is, um, is about meatpacking. I mean, it's about immigrants, really. Um, so it's an interesting juxtaposition there, but, but it's with the meatpacking industry. Um, and after I read um, The Jungle, I think for probably three or four months, I, I didn't eat at all any, any meat. Um, uh, so it was one of those things. Eventually, I actually you know, came back to it, um, partly, I think, because of that agnotology you were talking mm-hmm. about, the forgetting um, on purpose, um, because I think if I read it again, I would be just as you know, have that visceral response that I did then. Um, but so I was wondering what you think about the power of words then in, in this, um, you know, your own words as, a, as an author um, and the, the words of, you know, others um, in, in veganism. 
I think I think they're they're very important. I think um, although I do think my book is uh, not a kind of activism book, it's not an advocacy book, and it has been received as such. It is a, a kind of critical book on veganism, uh, histories, and presence. And I guess if you work in that area, that's an easy critique. In fact, it's a critique I've had of everything I've written uh, <laughs> that has veganism in it. Is oh, this is this is just activism, um, and it can't be critical if it's also activism. Um, so, so I'm, I guess in the book, I'm, my words are trying to be faithful to the accounts that I have uh, researched, to the, to the interviews, to the histories, and to the, to the experiences with the chickens, as opposed to trying to change anyone's mind. It's, uh, it's not, not for that, it's to understand this kind of movement. Uh, I think there are lots of kind of powerful words. Um, Yes, yeah, so stories, stories and books and writing. And the, I mean, the field of animal studies, critical animal studies is like blossoming in literature, right? So, so there's certainly people more qualified to talk about that than me. And very, very interestingly. So, um, yeah, and I, I hope that I can pro provide some account of that. Um, and it's, it's been, as I said, very interesting to be in conversation with uh, literature studies and animal studies and critical animal studies over the last few years as they've definitely changed my mind on lots of things around the impact of stories and words and all those things. It's interesting that you mentioned that your goal is to do a, you know, a critical study of this movement uh, and you mentioned earlier that you know about this process then of writing a book that now that the book is out you also kind of feel like you weren't critical enough uh, and that's also a familiar thing i think from from my previous book too you know in the process of reading or writing it and finishing it and getting it out there you continue thinking about it it's like maybe you didn't go far enough so uh i guess the question is like what's next for you then do you have a new project lined up uh and in what ways will that be more critical i mean if that's your intention so i i have a couple of things i'm trying to work on a popular book on veganism uh but i don't think that would be <laughs> you know that would be less critical definitely that would be less critical uh, i have um kind of i've i've published several papers now on veganism. I'm not finished with it, but I am sort of taking a break with it from it. So I'm working solely with chickens at the moment, urban chickens in London, uh, particularly therapeutic chickens, the history of chickens and chicken keeping. Uh, when we talk about archives before I mentioned the egg, I'm thinking kind of about the egg as an archive, um, sciences of chicken, basically anything chicken, I'm thinking about it. Uh, so currently I'm doing an ethnography in London with some therapeutic hens which is where I will be off to tomorrow to see the chickens. Well, that sounds fabulous. Um, enjoy your time with your chickens. Um, so I've, I've, uh, I envy that kind of uh, work. I've worked a lot on pigs myself. So I have a, a book I've, I've put together on medieval pigs. So I'm all there for the, you know, getting down and dirty with your specific animal. Um, so we just want to thank Katie Oliver, uh, who came and talked to us about her book, Veganism, Archives and Animals, a Geographies of a Multi-Species World, which is out with Routledge. Uh, now. So um, we hope that everyone will grab a copy and take this critical look at the history and archives of veganism. So thanks, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely.